Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 9, Chapter 15, Machinery and Large-Scale Industry, Second Part. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Do a, a sort of a speed read of the whole chapter very as fast as I can without too much detail, uh, pointing out some issues and some uh, topics for discussion so that we can have a longer period of uh, discussion because I think there are some major issues which are set up in this chapter. But I do want to begin by kind of pointing out something which is, I think, very significant. As I said in the discussion last week, the, you have to think about the totality. And one of the part of the totality that Marx doesn't mention in his footnote, but which is obviously crucial, uh, the institutional arrangements and institutional conditions which prevail. And um, if I ask you the question, how much of this chapter depends on the factory inspector's reports. It's huge. And there's an interesting question which arose in the working day chapter as well, was why would a state which is dominated by capital and landlords actually produce this vast amount of information about what is going on in the factories? And it's not only the factory inspectors, it's the public health officials, everything else. There was something going on in the British state, right? Which was really very special. And one of the reasons that Marx could use the British case was not only because industrial capitalism was more advanced uh, in Britain than it was anywhere else, and therefore Marx could say basically to people in Europe and so on, that when we're dealing, when you're looking at the English case, it's not, it, you're looking at your future. So it's not only that, but also that it has this immense amount of, of information and the state apparatus that is collecting this information and by and large, one of the themes in the chapter Marx says at one point is that, you know, the British state was collecting information and passing laws at, at, a, at a pretty frantic rate. The problem was the laws were never enforced. And this is again something that's rather, rather special, rather unique. I mean, if you took out all of the materials from the factory inspector's report, you'd have a much shorter chapter, right? And a lot of the insights Marx relies upon is, is, is from that. Marx himself doesn't 
get into factories. As far as I know, he never really went into one. Of course, he had an advantage. He could talk to Engels and did obviously talk to Engels a great deal about what was going on in the factory system in Manchester and so on. So he was uh, well informed about it. But personally, most of his information is coming from the factory uh, inspectors. Uh, so this long chapter then has a number of, of important headings. Uh, the first one we dealt with last time, which is about the, the general development of a single machine into a system of machines which creates a factory, and Marx gives this graphic description that innovations in one sector call for innovations in another. Even uh, the indirect uh, innovations which are necessary in transport and communications and systems of, of uh, ocean liners and things like that, so that Innovation has to be across the board. But the main theme here, and I think this is something we ought to really pay attention to throughout, is how capital came, as he puts it, uh, to develop uh, a technological and organizational framework that was suited to its own distinctive made mode of production. But up until this point, it had relied upon a technological and organizational framework drawn from a preceding uh, period. But this is, as he says, uh, uh, the way in which capital came uh, to, to create. Now, if, if that is the case, and any mode of production is at some point obligated to come up with its distinctive technology appropriate to its own system of production, then this actually says something about the task of socialism. And one of the themes that is in within this chapter is to what extent is the technological and organizational form that has arisen uh, under capitalism appropriate for building an alternative kind of society i.e. a socialist society. Uh, after all, Lenin, uh, when he was faced with the problem of what, you know, what to do after the revolution, was keenly aware that you needed a high productivity labor process in order to get the materials to be able to fight the war and all of that kind of thing. And, he's, and he said, what form of organization is it uh, that can do that? And his answer was, the Fordist factory. So actually, he was, became a proponent of a kind of a socialist version of Fordism. Because it was only in that way that you could get the productivity that might be needed uh, to, to create the possibility for a socialist society. Deng Xiaoping, when went into the market, basically said, we've got a productivity problem. We can only solve it by, in effect, going, you know, developing the technologies and the organizational forms which are typical of a capitalist society. So there's an interesting kind of question here uh, about any transition in the mode of production. If, as Marx says, capital at some point had to undergo, had to create the transitions, and the factory system was, if you like, the form of the mode of production, then what, can we, what, what will happen uh, in terms of a socialist perspective? 
This is coupled also with the, with the other question, which is Marx is kind of saying, okay, capital has uncovered its distinctive mode of production. Um, right now, what Marx describes in here would be a very good description of factory labor conditions in Bangladesh, uh, in China, but it's not such a good description of labor processes in this country right now. Uh, there is, in this chapter, a kind of tendency on Marx's part to be a bit teleological. That is to say that ultimately the factory system is going to drive out everything else. When he was writing, he said it clearly hasn't happened because there's hybrid forms, there's mixed forms, uh, and the rest of it, and there are areas of the economy that can't be organized along the factory line, and there's a, also the question of can you industrialize uh, and, and, and turn agriculture in, into factories. And at that time, Marx was skeptical about the possibility of, uh, of being able to do that. But if the labor processes have changed, and if the mode of production in the sense that Marx is describing it here is no longer dominant, or is actually much more mixed than Marx describes, then what kind of society are we living in? Are we living under capitalism or what, you know, see what I'm saying? That if the technological changes have gone in a certain direction and there have been times when you get a sort of kind of technological utopianism, the early years of the internet, had the idea, oh, we're going to build a completely different society, different social relations, this kind of thing. Technology is going to actually create an alternative. We don't even have to think about socialism or because it's going to be an alternative society, which is going to be built on this alternative technology. You know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, people really seriously thought that was a possibility. I don't think people think it's much of a possibility now, given, you know the way in which that area of the economy has evolved. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. But these are the, some of the questions which I think get, get, get posed by this insistence that any mode of production has to come up with a technological and organizational form which is appropriate uh, to its specific uh, conditions. Marx then talks in the second section about the transfer of value to the the machine, and that brings up the issue uh, of moral depreciation of fixed capital. That is the fixed capital, which, you know, how do you account for the value going into the machine that the machine imparts to the commodities? Uh, what about the situation in which new technological innovations come along and render older machines obsolete? Uh, what, what do you do about that? Well, one of the things you do is you make sure that the, the value of the machine is recuperated as soon as possible. And the way you do that is, mean, is in many instances to try to uh, employ the machine 24 hours a day, which means that there's a completely different labor demand, which is 24 hours labor, which leads to a shift system uh, and, and uh, the like, but which also uh, presses capital to extend uh, the length of the working day. So Marx's kind of position about John Stuart Mill's question 
where he starts the chapter saying, you know, John Stuart Mill kind of kept on wondering why it was the technology that was supposed to lighten the load of labor always ended up uh, and making the labor conditions worse. And Marx's answer is, well, it's obvious because the, the aim of the technology is not to lighten the load of labor, it's to produce more surplus value. And if you can produce surplus value out of it, then, of course, it's going to be mobilized in such a way uh, as to make the lot of the laborer worse. And the, uh, the example of what happened to the internet and, and, and I, you know, information technology and all the rest of it, I think, is a very good example also of a situation which starts out where the question is, why can't this liberate us and gets turned into something else? It's because uh, the aim of capital in deploying all of that was uh, to squeeze out more surplus value somehow or other. And to the degree that it's managed to do so, it has perverted uh, a particular technology to capital's uh, ends, capitalist purposes. Then Marx goes on to talk about the effects on the, the worker and the worker uh, is first off, uh, it's possible to employ women and children, so family labor can substitute for individual labor, which is actually a very important process. That leads to the creation of all sorts of structures of uh, labor supply, a gang system, a family labor system, all the rest of it, uh, with exploitation of women and children being, uh, being accelerated. Uh, we also get the prolongation of the working day, which is partly about uh, uh, the, uh, the moral depreciation problem. Um, but there is, I think, a very, very important dichotomy which I want to mark, uh, which is that when Marx starts off, uh, he is very clear that Machines do not produce value. I've forgotten exactly where he said that. Um, but it's in the beginnings, beginning of his argument, he, he says, uh, um, the machine is a form of constant capital, therefore uh, it does... It, it, where exactly did he say that? Um, This always happens to me. I kind of know he says it somewhere. Where do you say it? You know, exactly. 509. Hmm? 509? Okay. So on 509, he says, yeah, okay. 509, he says, machinery, like every other component of constant capital, creates no new value. Okay. Underline that, but then put it next to what he says on page 530, which is machinery produces relative surplus value. And we mentioned this last time. That is a contradiction in a sense, but you can see how it arises, but it's a very important one, and, and just always keep it in mind. Now, one of the things that's going to happen because of this is because machines pr produce relative surplus value, capitalists think machines produce value, and capitalists therefore fetishize the machine as a source of value and surplus value when, in fact, to, to fetishize it as a false source of value is uh, a profound uh, uh, error, but it's understandable given that it can be a source of relative surplus value. So uh, there are this, this then produces some... Then the third part is the intensification of labor. Marx hasn't talked about intensification of labor up until this point, 
But it's very important because you can increase surplus value, not by extending the length of working day, by, but by increasing the intensity of labor. And to the degree that machinery gives you power over the intensity, it becomes a very important vehicle for producing relative surplus value via its uh, capacity uh, to create more in the way of intensity. And the intensity comes about in a number of ways. One is uh, the question of the porosity of the working day, how much downtime is taken by uh, laborers with their implements versus how much downtime is possible when a machine is working at a certain speed and a certain rhythm and, the, and workers have, so you can control the intensity via the machine technology and the worker is, in, is forced to greater and greater levels of uh, intensity. And at some point, Marx then kind of points out that if you shorten the work, working day, uh, you can actually compensate for that shortening of the working day by increasing the intensity. So there is an interesting question as to what the relationship is between absolute surplus value, extension of the working day, and increasing uh, intensity. Um, this then leads him into the consideration of the factory and the factory system. Uh, this, one of the things that happens with the factory system, and this is where uh, there's, a, there's a crucial kind of transformation takes place in the positionality of the labor, laborer uh, within the production process. Uh, the lifelong speciality, he says on page 547, the lifelong speciality of handling the same tool. <clears throat> now becomes the lifelong speciality of serving the same machine. Now, I want to emphasize this because this is contradicted later in the text. Machinery is misused in order to transform the worker from his very childhood into a part of a specialized machine. And then Marx talks about at the same time, his helpless dependence upon the factory as a whole and therefore upon the capitalist is rendered complete. Here as everywhere else, we must distinguish between the increased productivity, which is due to the development of the social process of production and that which is due to the exploitation by the capitalists of that development. In handicrafts and manufacture, the worker makes use of a tool. In the factory, the machine makes use of him. There the movements of the instrument of labor proceed from him. Here it is the movements of the machine that he must follow. In manufacture, the workers are part of a living mechanism. In the factory, we have a lifeless mechanism which is independent of the workers who are incorporated into it as its living appendages. So the worker goes from having autonomy and independence to in effect being uh, an appendage of the machine technology. And then Marx continues, factory work exhausts the nervous system to the uttermost. At the same time, it does away with the many-sided play of the muscles and confiscates every atom of freedom, both in bodily and intellectual activity. Even the lightning of the labor becomes an instrument of torture, since the machine does not free the worker from the work, but rather deprives the work itself of all content. This is a, a, the, the reintroduction of the theme of alienation, which Marx doesn't call alienation, but it's clearly, that's what he's, he's talking about. 
Every kind of capitalist production, insofar as it is not only a labor process, but also a capital's process of valorization, has this in common. But it is not the worker who employs the conditions of his work, but rather the reverse, the conditions of work employ the worker. However, it is only with the coming of machinery that this inversion first acquires a technical and palpable reality. Owing to its conversion into an automaton, the instrument of labor confronts the worker during the labor process in the shape of capital. Dead labor, which dominates and soaks up living labor power. Furthermore, and this is also important, the separation of the intellectual faculties of the production process from manual labor and the transformation of those faculties into powers exercised by capital over labor is, as we have already shown, finally completed by large-scale industry erected on the foundation of, of, of uh, a foundation of machinery. So, the worker becomes an appendage of the machine. The worker is not only turned in physically into an automaton that does what the machine commands and demands. Mental capacities, which were once very important in the life of the worker in terms of knowledge of the production system, are taken away from the worker and mental capacities become a power of capital over labor. This is very important because what Marx is saying is that this reconfiguration gives the power of mental capacities to the capitalist and the laborer is supposed to not to think. That's how Marx is putting it right here. The special skill, he says, of each individual machine operator who has now been deprived of all significance vanishes in an infinitesimal quantity in the face of the science, the gigantic natural forces and the mass of social labor embodied in the system of machinery, which together with these three forces constitutes the power of the master. This master, therefore, in whose mind the machinery and his monopoly of it are inseparably united, contemptuously tells his hands whenever he comes into conflict with them, and then this what, the, what the, 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 the owner says to the factory operatives. It's interesting about the term hands. Uh, uh, Charles Dickens uh, wrote this fantastic thing about uh, when he wrote, finally wrote a book about industrial labor, uh, about Coketown and all the rest of it. He, he kind of says, you know, uh, the owners called the people hands because he wishes they didn't have heads and stomachs. Which is sort of, you know, typical Dickens thing, but actually it's a very important thing. I mean, this is what Marx, in effect, is saying, right? And he's using this word hands in inverted commas to signal that there's something uh, awful about, about this uh, configuration. Now, all of this leads into the fifth section, which is, I think, a very interesting one. The struggle between worker and machine where Marx takes on the question of the Luddite movement, which is machine-breaking movement. I mean, workers were so pissed off at the sort of labor conditions which they were encountering through machine technology that in the middle of the night they would try and get somewhere and they'd smash the machines. And so there was this machine-breaking going on because machines were seen as the enemy of the autonomy of working class and, and, and uh, the, bale, the bane of working class life. But Marx starts off by pointing out, and here's the way we start to get the ambiguity, where he says, he says that, of course, workers were revolting against the machine. But, he says on 554, 
It took both time and experience before the workers learned to distinguish between machinery and its employment by capital, and therefore to transfer their attacks from the material instruments of production to the form of society which utilizes those instruments. Who's the enemy here? The machine or the capitalist that is using the machine in a certain kind of way? And there is, by the way, some evidence now by economic historians that throughout this whole period when machine breaking was, became quite a significant movement, that workers initially just smashed machines but after a bit started to smash only those machines in those factories uh, where the owner was being particularly piggish about their deployment. And so there was, it turns out, a, a, an actual shift in, in, in consciousness as to what the enemy was uh, throughout, throughout this period. Now, of course, what this does is to project the whole kind of question of technological change into the cauldron of class struggle. How is technological change actually being used uh, as a vehicle of class struggle? And Marx takes this up and, and, and on Psalm 562, he says, I think, a very important thing. Machinery, he says, does not just act as a superior competitor to the worker, always on the point of making him superfluous. It is a power inimical to him, and capital proclaims this fact loudly and deliberately, as well as making use of it. It is the most powerful weapon for suppressing strikes, those periodic revolts of the working class against the autocracy of capital. According to Gaskell, the steam engine was from the very first an antagonist of human power, an antagonist that enabled the capitalists to tread underfoot the growing demands of the workers, which threatened to drive the infant factory system into crisis. It would be possible to write a whole history of the inventions made since 1830 for the sole purpose of providing capital with weapons against working-class revolt. We would mention, above all, the self-acting mule. Now, this is an interesting thing. What is technological change about and why? It's about increasing labor productivity under capitalism. It's not about improving human well-being, although the, the technology people always say it is. It is. It's about increasing productivity, and it's also about disempowering the worker. And it's interesting. There was a, a, a rather well-known uh, figure in Second Empire Paris who was an industrialist who wrote copiously about the working class and what the workers were about. And in the course of writing about this, he talked about uh, his uh, ambitions in innovation. And he had a number of principles uh, that guided what he was going to do in terms of innovation. One of them was uh, to open up the production process to uh, disaggregation in the way that Marx talks about so that you could get more scientific and technological about it. The second was he wanted to improve, obviously, the productivity of labor that, that was associated with the machine. But his third principle was that he wanted to have machinery that helped disempower labor. I mean, he was very explicit about it. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I want a kind of machine technology, uh, which, which means that the, power, the, the labor has less power. Now, 
we've actually been through a whole era of technological innovation uh, in, in manufacturing. What has it done to the power of labor, both on, in the labor process, but also in the market? Marx earlier has talked about one of the things that machine does is throw people out of work. So if, you know, the labor movement's getting bolshy, you kind of say, okay, we'll have unemployment and we'll throw you out of work. So a machine technology that throws lots of people out of work deals with that. And actually, you know, historically, if you look at the kind of way in which deindustrialization occurred in the United States and Europe, what was it doing? It was driving people out of work. And as they're out of work, you get a high level of unemployment. So in this country, the Reagan recession of 1982, when unemployment went up to around 10, 15%. And at that point, you were gonna break the power of labor as, as Reagan did by breaking the PATCO, the, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, and, and fighting against labor and basically disempowering labor. So. There's a technological kind of line to this that deindustrialization uh, has actually disempowered labor in crucial ways. Uh, and the introduction of flexible uh, specialization, which actually some leftists back in the 1980s thought was going to be a liberatory technology because everybody likes greater flexibility of employment possibilities. But that flexibility was used to actually manipulate and destroy union power and, and lead into precarious temporary labor structures and you know, uh, the gig economy and all the rest of it. So the technological change, uh, as far as Marx is concerned, cannot be divorced from conditions of class struggle because it's, it's, it's disempowerment of the labor movement and the laboring classes both in the labor process, but also in the market, which it becomes part and parcel of what this technological dynamism is all about. So that this section, which is dealing with the Luddites directly, also has within it the whole kind of question of the role of technological innovation uh, being weaponized by capital as, a, as a, a serious weapon of class struggle. And Marx is, is, is opening up that, uh, that, that kind of question. Now, chapter six is a, a, a longest chapter about uh, the compensation theory. Um, and capitalists kind of often said machine technology doesn't, while it might throw people out of work here, it actually has compensating effects such that the, the aggregate unemployment is zero, or the effects on unemployment are zero. This was the compensation theory. That we introduce technological change, and yes, people are thrown out of work, but on, in being thrown out of work, you liberate means of subsistence for another segment of, of the work of, of workers to, 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 to take it up. At the same time, uh, because of the technological change, there's gonna be a greater demand for raw materials, and so he starts to look about to, at some of the questions of where uh, the raw materials are coming from. And that then leads into uh, some considerations of, uh, uh, of you know, what, what, the, what the impact of all of this is. Uh, and the theory of compensation then kind of said, well, okay, 
you need people to build the machines. So you've got extra employment in the machine tool industry. You've got extra employment, uh, people produce, uh, producing the raw materials and an extractivism. So all of this compensates in such a way. That was the theory. And Marx can say, that's rubbish. Uh, what, in effect, you get is a, is a throwing out of people of production. They sit upon the market. It depresses the labor, the price of labor, all the rest of it. And then maybe they're brought back in as the system expands. So he doesn't say that there's no expansion possibility and that the new expansions are not important. But he does say uh, that the theory of compensation uh, is, uh, uh, you know, just uh, uh, nonsense. But the increased demand for raw materials means uh, something. And he here introduces a kind of a thing on the side, uh, which is 578, 579. Uh, and he says that, you know, through the deployment of machinery and the increasing productivity, you're going to need an extra supply of raw materials. And, and then he kind of says this produces large scale. Uh, the general conditions of production appropriate to large-scale industry, this is on 579, have been established. This mode of production acquires an elasticity, a capacity for sudden extension by leaps and bounds, which comes up against no barriers but those presented by the availability of raw materials and the extent of sales outlets. Uh, so that there's problems, if you like, both in terms of supplying this but also finding markets for the increased output. On the one hand, the immediate effect of machinery is to increase the supply of raw material. Thus, for example, the invention of the cotton gin increased the production of cotton. On the other hand, the cheapness of the articles produced by machinery and the revolution in the means of transport and communication provide the weapons for the conquest of foreign markets. So suddenly, we're getting foreign markets. By ruining handicraft of finished articles in other countries, and Marx is referring here mainly to India, Machinery forcibly converts them into fields for the production of its raw material. Thus, India was compelled to produce cotton, wool, hemp, jute, and indigo for Great Britain. By constantly turning workers into supernumeraries, large-scale industry in all countries where it has taken root spurs on rapid increases in emigration and the colonization of foreign lands which are thereby converted into settlements for growing the raw material of the mother country, just as Australia, for example, was converted into a colony for growing wool. A new international division of labor springs up, one suited to the requirements of the main industrial countries, and it converts one part of the globe into a chiefly agricultural field of production for supplying the other part, which remains a preeminently industrial field. This revolution is linked with far-changing far-reaching changes in agriculture, which we need not discuss further at this point. Marx is basically talking here about, you know, the expansion of this system is going to lead to a new international division of labor, colonialism, imperialism, uh, and an increase of extractivism, what we now call extractivism, from many parts of the world. And that therefore, the theory of compensation uh, inadequately attacks and deals with the, the dynamics of expansion of a, a highly productive system. So the, the, the industrial, industrialization that Marx was seeing in Britain uh, produced 
the requirement that new sources of raw materials must be, must be set up and plundered at the same time as new markets must be found. So that therefore, and what's interesting about this is, there is a perpetual force, if you like, making for globalization, what we now call globalization. And actually, if you want a good theory of globalization, you go to the Communist Manifesto and some parts of capital, because Marx says, basically, the creation of the world market is inherent in the dynamics of capitalism. And everybody kind of thought globalization occur, started to occur in 1972 or something like that. Well, Marx is saying, no, uh, it was there in 1840s, it was there in the 1850s, and, 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 and the British conquest of India had everything to do with finding new markets. So you destroyed the handicraft industry and you marketed all your cotton goods into, in, into India. At the same time as India had to pay for all of those goods, how did it pay for it? Well, cotton, jute, you know, all the rest of it. So, so this is, this, if there is a theory of, of translation of, uh, of the dynamics of this system, it's, it cannot be covered with some simple theory of compensation. It has to be looked at in terms of this dynamic uh, uh, ex explosion. Um, this then uh, leads into uh, a, a sort of some, a, a series of discussions uh, of uh, exactly what happens uh, with uh, uh, within this is we're in this seventh section which is about uh, really crises in the cotton industry uh, where Marx goes over in, in, in considerable detail uh, to the the way in which um, the cotton industry was up and down, and it was, in a sense, he's kind of saying, it's almost invariably the case that capitalist production is not going to expand in a smooth kind of expansion. It's likely to be cyclical, and that there will be phases of very rapid expansion, follow, in a sense, talking about the formation of business cycles. But it's interesting, this, this section on uh, seven on the repulsion and attraction of workers that you're talking about business cycles in, in time, but you're also talking about geographical spread in terms of the colonization of the Indian market in, the very in a very specific way and the creation of a new international division of labor. So the, the factory system cannot sort of simply serve its locality. Uh, and and it's, it has this dynamism of, of, of phases of expansion, but also it's a geographical uh, expansion too. Um, earlier he had, uh, 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 I missed out on something which is rather important uh, early in, in earlier in the theory of compensation, uh, which is that the, the expansions uh, entail not only a, a possible expansion of the proletariat, but also an expansion of the capitalist class. And, and the requirement, which is, is a very, very important theme in, in volume three of Capital, which is that you're creating surplus. You need to find a way to invest it. The machine and factory system is creating surplus hand over fist. Where is the surplus going to be reinvested and how is it going to be reinvested? Well, some of the surplus is going to go to increasing the standard of living of the bourgeoisie, which in itself creates a new market. And so you, you, you can realize 
more value by marketing to them. Then you need uh, the, where, where, the, the world market, but you can't get to the world market unless you invest in the construction of canals, docks, tunnels, bridges, and so on. Uh, so entirely new branches of production, creating new fields of labor, are also formed. And this is not Marx saying this is not a, a theory of compensation, but it's an impact of this dynamism of, the, of industrial capitalism. And, and then Marx talks about the formation of new industries. The chief industries of this kind are at present gasworks, telegraphy, photography, steam navigation, and railways. So, you know, the, the, the expansion of the, of the, of the, uh, the factory system cannot continue without an expansion of infrastructural investments, which creates entirely new fields uh, for investment, which it then uh, actually creates new new structures, new social structures uh, within society. So this is um, Marx. Then in, in section eight says, well. Let's look at the revolutionary impact of large-scale industry on manufacture, handicrafts, and domestic industry. Now, here he realizes that this machine technology is not going to take over everywhere simultaneously, and that there, there, there are lagging uh, areas, and that in those lagging areas, however, competition from the machine sector tends to put intense pressure uh, on manufacturing structures to engage in practices of exploitation, which are kind of really savage, but that it is possible uh, for alternative forms of organization to persist. So on five, number one, he talks about uh, uh, the factory worker, the workers engaged in manufacture, and the handicraftsman, whom it concentrates in large matrices at one spot and directly commands, capital also sets another army in motion by means of invisible threads. The outworkers in the domestic industries who live in the large towns as well as being scattered over the countryside. And he then talks about workers, uh, uh, the dispersal of the workers, but how this is to some degree advantageous for capital. As he says, in the so-called domestic industries, which is the putting out system where uh, you, you put the, you got the peasant huts, people working in peasant huts to do the weaving, and then you collected the, the woven materials at the end of the month. He uh, says, in the so-called domestic industries, exploitation is still more shameless than in modern manufacture because the workers' power of resistance declines with their dispersal. Now, this is an interesting kind of comment because there have been times when capital, in order to prevent... Uh, Worker organization is engaged in tactics of geographical dispersal. And actually, one of the things that tended to happen uh, after 1980 or so was the dispersal of a lot of activity uh, geographically so that organization of labor became much difficult, more difficult. Uh, and he says, the workers' power of resistance declines with their dispersal because a whole series of plundering parasites insinuate themselves between the actual employer and the worker he employs. So this is about what happens within domestic industries. And he then talks about the perpetuation of the modern 
of, of manufacturing of the sort he described in the previous chapter uh, and what happens and he then talks about uh, modern domestic industry uh, which uh, in his case he talks about lace making uh, and, and, and the like and then he talks about uh, the transitions which are occurring in, in modern manufacture and, and how the transitions are orchestrated and he introduces the technology of the, the sewing machine which is a very interesting. I mean, you can either set up sewing machines in vast pack factories, so you have just a vast factory of sewing machines and people sewing, or you can actually subcontract out to sort of family labor and say, get to work on your sewing machine in the basement and, you know, this kind of thing. So the sewing machine uh, has been a very, very important vehicle for both concentrated and dispersed systems uh, of, uh, of, of manufacturing. Um, Marx then uh, finally talks about uh, the after the the, the, the the transition he starts to talk about the various uh, transitional forms and this brings him to talk a little bit more about uh, the nature of the uh, of the factory uh, uh, factory system, general nature of the factory system. So there's an interesting sort of passage on 607. He says, but though the factory acts ripen the material elements necessary to the conversion of the manufacturing system into the factory system, yet at the same time, because they make it necessary to lay out a greater amount of capital, they hasten the decline of the small masters and the concentration of capital. Now this is an interesting observation because it's very often the case that large, heavy intervention and regulatory reform often has uh, an adverse impact upon the small producers. Only the big producers are really positioned to be able to deal with the regulatory system. And the result is that the imposition of more and more state regulation often has the effect of centralizing production and actually producing monopoly power. As he says, apart from the purely technical impediments which can be removed by technical means, the irregular habits of the workers themselves obstruct the regulation of the hours of labor. This is especially the case where peace wages predominate and where loss of time in one part of the day or week can be made good by subsequent overtime or by night work, a process which brutalizes the adult worker and ruins his wife and children. Um, he then talks about the whole kind of question of seasonal labor. But then there comes a, another interesting observation when he kind of says that when you've got a situation where there is a periodicity of favorable seasons of the year for navigation or favorable seasons of fashion, when new fashions are going to be demanded, and the sudden placing of large orders that have to be executed in the shortest possible time, the habit of giving such orders becomes more frequent with the extension of railways and telegraphs. And he then talks, in effect, about the creation of what we now call a just-in-time system that to the degree that communication structures are set up, it becomes possible to jump 
more rapidly uh, to deal with immediate demand. So if there's an immediate demand for something, you can send it by the telegraph and say, I need more of this equipment or more, more of this raw material. And the raw material can be at your disposal within a, within a few days instead of well, you know, months or something of that kind. So but the, the, in effect, what this does is it allows uh, uh, producers uh, to actually economize on, on the inventories they hold. That is, you don't have to sit there with a vast stock of, of, of cotton uh, over a long period of time. You can, in order to engage in sort of uh, uh, power loom weaving, you can simply sort of say, okay, we need this amount of power loom weaving now. The, the cotton can come from somewhere else, and we ordered the cotton as we need it. So you start to get uh, the, the organization of a primitive kind of logistics system within uh, the, the industry, and Marx is uh, talking uh, about that. But one of the, 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 the important aspects of this uh, is, again, uh, the greater coordination which is existing in society, the communication structure, uh, the, 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 the commodity chain, which we, as we now talk about, or the value chain, and then the kind of the ability to be very flexible in relationship to the com demands, uh, the, the fluctuating and often fickle demands of, of, of the market. So section nine is on the health and education clauses of the Factory Acts. Um, it's clear, says Marx, that the, the free trade dogma, and he's going to be ironic when he says on 611, he says, here is yet another dazzling vindication of the free trade dogma, that in a society mutually antagonistic, in a society of mutually antagonistic interests, each individual furthers the common welfare by seeking his own personal advantage. Part of what Marx is talking about is individual capitalists working in their own self-interest actually do a tremendous job of screwing up the whole system. And the, the aggregate effects are disastrous. The aggregate effects in the working day, you recall, are disastrous. The ag aggregate effects of individual maximizing behavior in the, fact, in the, in the world of factory labor is also uh, disastrous, not simply socially and politically, but even technically from the standpoint of the dynamics of capital accumulation. So he's going to talk here about the, the, the Factory Act and the education clauses and things of that kind. And on 614, he's, he mentions Robert Owen, uh, where he suddenly realizes or introduces the idea that Robert Owen was a factory owner. Robert Owen, however, started to try to create a benevolent form of factory labor. Uh, and Marx comments that Robert Owen has shown us in detail, the germ of the education of the future is present in the factory system. So we've been dealing with this awful incoherent system and here's Marx saying, the germ of the education of the future is present in this factory system. This education will, in the case of every child over a given age, combine productive labor with instruction and gymnastics, not only as one of the methods of adding to the efficiency of production, but as the only method of producing fully developed human beings. 
So we suddenly got this concept coming up in this, uh, of the possibility within the industrial system of transforming it into a system which would become a method of producing fully developed human beings. As he says, as we have seen, large-scale industry sweeps away by technical means the division of labor characteristic of manufacture, under which each man is bound hand and foot for a life to a single specialized operation. At the same time, the capitalist form of large-scale industry reproduces the same division of labor in a still more monstrous shape in the factory proper by converting the worker into a living appendage of the machine. Now we've seen this uh, back uh, before. And everywhere outside the factory, by the sporadic use of machinery and machine workers, or by the introduction of the labor of women, children, and unskilled men as a new foundation for the division of labor. The contradiction, he says, between the division of labor under manufacture and the essential character of large-scale industry makes itself forcibly felt. It appears, for example, in the frightful fact that a great part of the children employed in modern factories and manufacturers are from their earliest years riveted to the most simple manipulations and exploited for years without being taught a single kind of skill that would afterwards make them of use, even in the same factory. So this is his complaint. But at the same time, what we start to see is the disaggregation of the industrial labor process into something different. And he talks on the next page, on 616, about the situation in which, right down to the 18th century, the different trades were called mysteries, mystères, into whose secrets none but those initiated by a profession and their practical experience could penetrate. So it was an art. Production was an art, a mystery. If people were successful in production, it's because of their intelligence and their capacities. But large-scale industry, he said, tore aside the veil that concealed from men their own social process of production and turned the various spontaneously divided branches of productions into riddles, not only to outsiders, but even to the initiated. Its principle, which is to view each process of production in and for itself and to resolve it into its constituent elements without looking first at the ability of the human hand to perform the new processes, brought into existence the whole of the modern science of technology. Again, this is a knowledge structure which is now being converted. This is a conversion of mental conceptions of the world and mental understandings of the world. The various unconnected and petrified forms of the social production process were now dissolved into conscious and planned applications of natural science divided up systematically in accordance with a particularly useful effect aimed at in each case. Similarly, technology discovered the few grand fundamental forms of motion, which despite all the diversity of the instruments used, apply necessarily to every productive action of the human body, just as the science of mechanics is not misled by the immense complication of modern machinery into viewing this as anything other than the constant reappearance of the same simple mechanical processes. And he then goes on to say, modern industry never views or treats the existing forms of a production process as the definitive one. Its technical basis is therefore revolutionary, whereas all earlier modes of production were essentially conservative. 
By means of machinery, chemical processes, and other methods, it is continually transforming not only the technical basis of production, but also the functions of the worker and the social combinations of the labor process. At the same time, it thereby also revolutionizes the division of labor within society and incessantly throws masses of capital and of workers from one branch of production to another. Thus, large-scale industry, by its very nature, necessitates variation of labor, fluidity of functions, and the mobility of the worker in all directions. But on the other hand, in its capitalist form, it reproduces the old division of labor with its ossified particularities. We have seen how this absolute contradiction does away with all repose, all fixity, and all security, as far as the worker's life security is concerned how it constantly threatens by taking away the instruments of labor to snatch from his hands the means of subsistence and, and by suppressing his specialized function to make him superfluous. And he talks about this, the reckless squandering of labor powers and then the devastating effects of social anarchy. And then he goes on and says this, this is on 618, it's really interesting. This, he said, is the negative side. And it's very unlike Marx to say there's only one side to any question as you probably by now have already realized. But if at present variation of labor imposes itself after the manner of an overpowering natural law, and with the blindly destructive action of a natural law that meets with obstacles everywhere, large-scale industry, through its very catastrophes, makes a recognition of variation of labor, and hence of the fitness of the worker for the maximum number of different kinds of labor into a question of life and death. This is a completely different story from the one that we started out with. This possibility of varying labor must become a general law of social production, and the existing relations must be adapted to permit, permit its realization in practice. That monstrosity, the disposable working population held in reserve, in misery, for the changing requirements of capitalist exploitation, must be replaced by the individual man who is absolutely available for the different kinds of labor required of him. The partially developed individual who is merely the bearer of one specialized social function must be replaced by the totally developed individual for whom the different social functions are different modes of activity he takes up in turn. Now, this isn't a pretty extraordinary kind of conception. He says, industrial capitalism produces a situation which imprisons labor and you know, the division of labor and so to a lifelong task, it harnesses children in such a way that they can never be anything other than what, you know. But at the same time, this industrial system is so unstable and is so dynamic and is so uh, pressing always for something different that it cannot actually survive on the basis of a labor force that only can do one thing. It wants a labor force that can switch from one thing or another or has a talent or a capacity in which they can move very easily from this branch of industry to that branch of industry, or from that particular kind of task to another task. Those, that switching around is very difficult to imagine if the labor force is not literate, if it is not, to some degree, trained and knowledgeable in terms of simple mechanical principles and can therefore uh, adapt itself rapidly to alternative tasks. And this is 
as Marx is concerned, is he doesn't call it the positive side, but it is the positive side. So it has this negative side in terms of its industrial organization and its social relations and its mental conceptions. And then it puts demands on the labor force, which mean that labor force has to uh, actually take on a different character. This carries over, then, to some other observations that the children of the workers must receive a certain amount of instruction in technology and in the practical handling of the various implements of labor. Though the Factory Act, that first and meager concession rung from capital is limited to combining elementary education with work in the factory, there can be no doubt that with the inevitable conquest of political power by the working class, technological education, both theoretical and practical, will take its proper place in the schools of the workers. There is also no doubt that those revolutionary ferments whose goal is the abolition of the old division of labor stand in diametrical contradiction with the capitalist form of production and the economic situation of the workers which corresponds to that form. However, the development of the contradictions of a given historical form of production is the only historical way in which it can be dissolved and then reconstructed on a new basis, a phrase which was the absolute summit of handicraft wisdom became sheer nonsense from the moment the watchmaker Watt invented the steam engine, the barber Arkwright throstle and the jeweler Fulton, the steamship. So he then talks about the factory legislation. But this has something else attached to it, which is an interesting sort of passage on 620, 621 where he starts to talk about the question of social reproduction. And I've mentioned, you know, social reproduction is not Marx's forte. He doesn't always, you know, pay attention to it. But he suddenly pays great attention to it about what's going on in, the, in, in terms of social relations within the household. Because education and the like is also partly located in the household. Uh, and we have to deal with the question of uh, parental power and uh, what's going on here. And so there's a discussion about this. Um, coming to the conclusion, however disgusting, however terrible and disgusting the dissolution of the old family ties within the capitalist system may appear, because remember, when women and children are now into the workforce, large-scale industry, by assigning an important part in socially organized processes of production outside the sphere of the domestic economy to women, young persons, and children of both sexes does nevertheless create a new economic foundation for a higher form of the family and of relations between the sexes. Again, Marx is kind of hypothesizing that the transformations occurring within the industrial system and the spread of different forms of factory labor and the perpetual revolutionary practices uh, are going to have an effect, a very powerful relation to the nature of family life and of relations between the sexes. Uh, again, whether this is reasonable 
assertion or not, you know, is open to be debated. But Marx is clearly saying we have to see this relationally. That there's a relationality between you know, the production system and uh, issues of social reproduction. Now, what that relation is, you know, is fairly has a very simple, simplistic view of it. Uh, but this also carries over to the question of how a collective working group is setting up, and we begin now to start to talk about collective labor as opposed to individual labor. It is also obvious, he says, that the collective working group is composed of individuals of both sexes and all ages must, under the appropriate conditions, turn into a source of humane development. Although in its spontaneously developed brutal capitalist form, the system works in the opposite direction and becomes a pestiferous source of corruption and slavery, since here the worker exists for the process of production and not the process of production for the worker. So he sees glimmers of possibility uh, within this for some sort of uh, redemptive transformation, uh, both in the labor process but also in social world of social reproduction, which is going to have some importance uh, for uh, how uh, state interventions are eventually going to be captured, if you like, by workers so that they themselves start to become educated into the technologies which are required uh, for uh, a, a sophisticated form of production. There then follows a lot of quotations from the Factory Act, goes on for pages and pages and pages, which I'm not going to go through, uh, which is very much about uh, the, the, you know, for instance, the employment of women and children and all the rest of it. Uh, and this is a, a you know, my, my original comment of Marx wouldn't be able to written all of this if the factory inspectors hadn't produced this vast archive of information. Um, so the end of this section, I think, is worthwhile paying a little attention to on 635 where he says, if the general extension of factory legislation to all trades for the purpose of protecting the working class, both in mind and body, has become inevitable. On the other hand, as we already pointed out, that extension hastens on the general conversion of numerous isolated small industries into a few combined industries carried on upon a large scale. It therefore accelerates the concentration of capital and the exclusive predominance of the factory system. It destroys both the, both the ancient and transitional forms behind which the dominion of capital is still partially hidden and replaces them with a dominion which is direct and unconcealed. By doing, but by doing this, it also generalizes the direct struggle against its rule. While in each individual workshop it, informs, it enforces uniformity, regularity, order and economy, the result of the immense impetus given to technical improvements by the limitation and regulation of the working day is to increase the anarchy and proneness of catastrophe of capitalist production as a whole, the intensity of labor, competition of machinery with the worker. By the destruction of small-scale and domestic industries, it destroys the last resorts of the redundant population, thereby removing what was previously a safety valve for the whole social mechanism. By maturing the material conditions and the social combination of the process of production, it matures the contradictions and antagonisms of the capitalist form of that process, and thereby ripens both the elements of forming a new society and the forces tending towards the overthrow of the old one. 
So this is Marx talking about, you know, how to come out, coming out of this, what the prospects might be for utilizing some of the elements which are being necessarily created within this capitalist dynamic to be using them for a progressive uh, purpose. And the last section is about large-scale industry and agriculture, in which uh, agriculture in Marx's time was sort of set aside. It was, of course, the largest employer of labor, uh, and uh, much of society was organized in terms of peasant-based uh, uh, production and, 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 and the like, and Marx is, is talking about that uh, situation and recognizes here, too, that there is a transition in process, but it hasn't gone too far. Uh, as he says, uh, at the same time, capital uh, creates the material conditions for a new and higher synthesis, a union of agriculture and industry on the basis of the forms that have developed during the period of their antagonistic isolation. Capitalist production collects the population together in great centers, and causes the urban population to achieve an ever-growing preponderance. This has two results. On the one hand, it concentrates the historical motive power of society. On the other hand, it disturbs the metabolic interaction between man and the earth. So suddenly, we're back to the metabolic relation to nature. It prevents the return to the soil of its constituent elements consumed by men in the form of food and clothing. Hence, it hinders the operation of the eternal natural condition for the lasting fertility of the soil. Thus it destroys at the same time the physical health of the urban worker and the intellectual life of the rural worker, thereby destroying the circumstances surrounding that metabolism which originated in a merely natural and spontaneous fashion. It compels its systematic restoration as a regulative law of social production and in a form adequate to the full development of the human race. The dispersal of the rural workers over large areas breaks their power of resistance while concentration increases that of the urban workers. In modern agriculture, as in urban industry, the increase in the productivity and the mobility of labor is purchased at the cost of laying waste and debilitating labor power itself. Moreover, all progress in capitalist agriculture is a progress in the art not only of robbing the worker, but of robbing the soil. All progress in increasing the fertility of the soil for a given time is a progress towards ruining the more long-lasting sources of that fertility. The more a country proceeds from large-scale industry as the background of its development, as in the case of the United States, the more rapid is this process of destruction. Capitalist production, therefore, only develops the techniques and degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. So Marx is saying that the depletion by capital of natural resources is equivalent to the depletion of the productive capacities of the working class through the processes of industrial production, extensions of the working day, uh, increasing intensity, uh, loss of autonomy, and uh, that at the same time as there are these glimmers of hope through education, technological change, the fact that capital at a certain point is going to require a mass, edu mass educated workforce which is fluid and capable of moving from one place to another uh, in order to meet the needs of industrial production. Okay, it took rather longer than I wanted, but I wanted to, to, to emphasize, I think, 
there are these many issues that crop up in this chapter, which are very much about what, how, how, how we're going to respond today to artificial intelligence, uh, in what ways artificial intelligence is going to have a transformative effect on our mental conceptions of the world, what's it going to do to labor process, how is it going to be integrated into processes of social reproduction, uh, what's the metabolic relation to nature look like? You know, there are all these kinds of questions uh, which it seems to me uh, Marx is uh, getting at in this, in this chapter. So even though some of it feels a bit dated and particular to, to Marx's own perspective, the general question he's raising and trying to deal with are general questions which are still with us and still need to be uh, thought about. I think uh, fairly seriously. It's not that Marx has the answers, but that I think Marx is asking a right set of questions. And once we consider those questions and ask about, you know, for instance, the depletion of the soil and so on, we find a whole series of very important issues uh, which can be the center of considerable debate. And behind it is, is this kind of question. Uh, what kind of technology would we want to see developed? What, what is it that is actually giving us the tra trajectory of certain technologies? Uh, we know, I mean, just in terms of the history of medicine, that uh, the, the medical technologies were you know, way, way ahead uh, for... Uh, White working class, yeah, you know, white working class, but white, uh, you know, uh, bourgeois people, and so you know the technology of dealing with uh, heart attacks is kind of way, way ahead. But the, the technology of dealing with uh, sickle cell anemia or something like that, or distinctively proletarian problems, is 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 very defective. So the, there's always this class element and there's always within this realm of technological production which we kind of tend to view as being kind of well it's just out there it's happening all over the place but behind it there is a class project and and there or, or there may be a class project let me put like that which deserves to be investigated and interrogated are the new technologies coming on board new technologies which are beneficial to everyone or do they have a class bias? Or, as in the case of the machines where Marx is talking about Luddite, is it a, a case that the technology is potentially valuable from the standpoint of a socialist future, uh, but it gets perverted by capitalist social relations and capital into something completely different? Is that the problem? What, so what is the, what is the nature of the te uh, technological problem right now? And, and what are the consequences of the pursuit of technological fixes which are constantly focused on increasing the productivity of labor? Because if you increase the productivity of labor, you are, as Marx pointed out, systematically committed to the expansion of the market and the expansion of the terrain from which you're going to draw your raw, raw materials. That is, if as has been argued in recent years, there's been an incredible burst of extractivism 
around the world, extractivism of raw materials around the world. The amount of copper being taken out of the ground has doubled since 2007. If that is the case, then, then you know, is that good? And, 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 and that, why, is, why is that occurring? And is that the nature of the capitalist dynamic? So Marx is, I think, setting up a, a framework in which to think about these things. So you could write an even longer chapter than Marx wrote. So if anybody's looking for a good dissertation topic, it would be, what would Marx write now if given the information that's available, you know? Uh, so there's, 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 I think there's something fascinating about this, this, this chapter, and it's a kind of a, uh, a probing. It's, it's probing of all of these different, different, uh, uh, different questions. Let me. So let me throw it open to sort of, you know, get some of your reactions and, and what what you think about some of these things and what you came up with in terms of uh, thinking about the materials in this chapter. Who wants to go first? Yeah, I'll just back there. Thanks again, David, for a fantastic talk. Um, I'd like to take up that invitation, also what you said at the start, and ask something that's been pondering me, that I've been pondering about. Um, the concept that um, all value is created by labour, not by machines. I understand the logic of that, and it, it has a great logic to it. But then when I look at some of the new technology firms, Facebook, Google, and so on, which creating massive profits, and we're not basically heading towards creation of monopoly profits. And it's, it's hard to look at that and see the value in there that's being, you know, it's a function of labor of the employees or the contractors of the organization. I understand, you know, you can sort of Think of it in terms of all the dead labour involved in the technology, the software, and the hardware, and so on. But I'm not sure whether I don't find that con totally convincing as to theorising about this new form of capital. And I'm wondering whether you've thought about that. Is it is it more like finance capital? Is it something totally different? Do we need if Marx were writing a dissertation these days, how would he write about yeah. those sorts of things? I often think about that. Um, well, let me say two preliminary things, okay. What Marx argues in Capital by the time you get to the end of Volume 3 is that you're not looking at a situation where you have to discuss the, the individual production of value in a firm or anything else. That, in effect... All productive labor produces value and, and, and the image you can use it, and it all goes into one big pot. And then people draw from that, appropriate from that pot according to the capital they advance. And it's a kind of interesting thing. You contribute to the total value of society according to the labor you employ. You take from society according uh, to the capital you advanced. Now, on that principle, Anybody who advances a lot of capital but employs no labor can actually withdraw a great deal of the value. So the fact that you will find industrials and parts of the segments in the division of labor where very little labor is deployed but you see a high rate of profit and all the rest of it, 
that is being that has been achieved through this other mechanism, which is the equalization of the rate of profit. So that's the first thing I want to say. Uh, I don't think it covers entirely what you're talking about. The second thing is okay. I think it's important to say something like uh, Google. Uh, where's the labour coming from? And and of course the point about Google is that it's actually going back to a, uh, almost a, uh, a putting out system. <laughs> We're actually providing the labor, right? And we're providing, there's a massive amount of value which, which you and I and everybody else is creating by our use of Google. I mean, two things go on. We are in the condition of uh, what Alvin Toffler called, we, we act as prosumers. That is, we are both consuming and producing at the, at the same moment. When we get on Google and we are actually, you know, we're providing Google with some information, which is vital. So it, there is the, amount of, the amount of value, so, so be careful about these, these firms that appear as if, you know, no, there's no, no labor, not much labor employed, but they're getting vast amount of profits. Therefore, they, they can't be producing that much value. Well, uh, actually, you know, if, 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 if every user of Google is producing something for Google, then that value needs to be taken into account. And uh, I think actually Google is a massive source of value creation right now. Through, through the fact that you know, so many people are using it all of the time. The same thing about Facebook and all the rest of it, that you create the information. So that's the, the, the second thing. The third thing is, I think, where I, you, know, you, you are headed, and I think this is, this is, this is right, to, to ask the question. It's not easy to look at some of these contemporary forms of organization uh, like uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon and all the rest of it, it's not easy to look at them uh, and and say, well, you can simply plug them into to Marx's formulation and and everything is going to be okay. Because I just don't think that's correct. I don't. Uh, you know, it, my first two comments make it probably make it sound like I'm trying to defend Marx and okay, you don't have to change anything because he's right and so. <laughs> I don't want to go, go there, but I, I do want to say that there, is, there are those elements which I think it's important to take into account, but at the same time, um, there, is a, 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 there are some very important issues right now about uh, you know, what is value, how to understand value in the contemporary situation. For instance, what do we produce when we're producing value for, for uh, Google? We're producing information. Is information value? Is it reasonable? If information is value, then you know we have to start talking about all kinds of information being value. And what kind of information is value and what is not? But Google's operation, you see, is taking all of that information and then valorizing it. I mean, Marx actually has this interesting kind of language where he talks about the valorization moment. If, if Google simply took the information and spread it out and said, you all, you all can use it, 
it would not be valorized because it would not be part of the circulation of capital. But what Google is especially specializing in is taking information and valorizing it and turning it into... But that means that you take the information and you turn it into a proprietary form. You commodify it. You turn it into a commodity. Because we, when we're making the information, are not actually making a commodity. We're, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just using it and we're prosumers. We're, we're, uh, so, so it has to be commodified at a certain point. And it's that moment of commodification which uh, allows uh, for Google to say they own this information. And I think it's the ownership of the information that becomes very important. And again, of course, this is, this is, you know, the ownership of something starts to become very significant, like this, this controversy over the opening of Hudson Yards and the, what's that crazy thing called? The, the, the vessel? Or uh, is it called, called the vessel? Is it anyway? I mean, the designers of it say, the shed. Uh, "No, no, not the shed. The the the, the, the crazy walk thing, uh, uh, the vessel." Yeah. Well, well, the designers kind of said, uh, you know, uh, everybody could go on it and do what they want, you know, and they could take as many photos of the light, but they had a proprietary right for commercial use of any image of it that anybody put on Facebook. So if you took an image and you put it on Facebook, the designers of the thing said they could use it and, and, and you couldn't charge them for, for, for using it. In other words, <laughs> this is a very interesting concept, right? Uh, I mean, if, if, let's, suppose, let's suppose somebody takes a brilliant kind of image and puts it on Facebook. Then the company can come along and take it and turn it into postcards and sell it as postcards or something like that or sell it on the internet or something like that. In other words, this, the valorization is, 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 is not in, you know, Marx primarily looks upon val the uh, operation of valorization as being the application of labor uh, in the production of a commodity. But it is, but I think there's more to valorization than simply that. There's also the valorization that comes with actually exercising a proprietary right. But that's something that's different and Marx doesn't deal with. And it, it seems to me that this then redefines uh, the value stream. And it says that anything that is turned into a proprietary right, uh, information, knowledge, or something of that kind, uh, is, and, and is commodified, uh, then enters into uh, what value is about. So I, I think that, that there is... There, there, there are some serious modifications. This is the way I would start to, uh, to, 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 to look at the, the problem. But I'm, but I'm not, I'm not sure this is far enough, or that it deals with uh, the, 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 you know, the, 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 what the consequences are of saying, well, the exercise of any proprietary right over anything and commodification actually then introduces. A value element into, but then the question is, well, how much value is there in the in the original element that gets commodified this way? So there's a lot of problems with with what I'm saying, and I know that. But but you know, yeah, I I, I think that we need to rethink to some degree what the value theory is about and what the role of labor is in 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 that. 
and recognize that these indirect forms of labor are, are uh, potentially significant in, uh, within, within this complex structure. So my question is related with the last part that you were mentioning about the, the labor forms. And basically, I was thinking about which is the place of this chapter in the capital as a whole. And basically, one of the questions that I have is how to think the conceptual and categories that he's using to demonstrate certain um, development, a certain argument. So if machine is like the capital, capitalist form, uh, par excellence, two things. Why is he not, he's not using categories such as um, abstract labor, for instance? Um, I think that will be interesting to, to notice that the dialectics of the negative and the positive would change radically if we think in terms of how machine is reproducing or not abstract labor. And in that sense, it would also change the idea of what is socialism because if we read this, this chapter through a Leninist uh, perspective, I think we can find many of his state and revolution arguments of yeah. using even like Taylorist technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how to think um, machinery and even state, state as such, yeah. as within that logic that we should criticize from the previous categories that he's using in the first uh, part of the book? Right. I, I think... Uh, this chapter is based in very much on the idea of abstract labor. So I think that, that, that would not bother me. What, what is interesting, however, is this moment where he's kind of saying, you know, the abstract labor structures uh, carry within them the possibility of conversion into something different, where abstract labor would not be uh, the objective of uh, what the machines are about, but something else is uh, going, going to be involved. So I think that's uh, important. The, se the second point, I, I can only give my own sort of response to it. Uh, and probably most of you will disagree with this. Um, but in the same way that I think that the creation of... of contemporary capitalism started off uh, having to appropriate the technologies of a preceding mode of production. So I think it's inevitable that uh, any move towards socialism will have to be based on the current technologies. And in the same way that Marx talks about the 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 reconfiguration of the way those te technologies were set up uh, under feudalism uh, in the transition to capitalism. You know, we can imagine a situation where we would say, all right, we, we've got the contemporary technologies, can we put them together in a different way for a different social purpose? Uh, but the, there would be no real change in the technologies. And I think to some degree I have a sympathy with the uh, uh, Lenin, uh, that he looked to Taylorism and he looked to Fordism uh, as being the superior 
you know, industrial forms that could uh, that had the productivity uh, to actually produce the armaments they needed. Uh, they they want to build tanks, and they needed something. So I have a certain sympathy with the fact that he took over the the Fordist structures and said, uh, "Okay, we're going to use these at the base as the base." Where I would start to be critical is to kind of say that um, at a certain point, uh, say uh, around around the time when Stalin came in and started doing uh, Stalinist things, um, around that around that point, there, there 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 had been a very interesting period of of discussion. About new economic policy and, and 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 all the rest of it, and there was the beginnings of a, a sort of argument about uh, well, what kind of alternative technologies would we need to set up? And so, I think if if there was a if there was you know, a, a failure in the, in the Soviet uh, revolution, it, it was that it it. it didn't go very far in asking that kind of question. Uh, it even got to the point of taking uh, the value theory as a normative requirement, and then set about saying, "Well, what kind of organizational forms can we set up which, within this, what in effect is a capitalist value structure, what kind of uh, communist forms can we set up?" And of course, they did did some very interesting things. I mean, they invented input-output analysis. They there are many technological areas where the Soviets were way ahead of uh, even of contemporary capitalism. Because, but at the same time, they were not actually really thinking about all right, what kind of value theory uh, should exist in a socialist society, and what kinds of technologies would be uh, necessary. Uh, to reorganize productive activity uh, with the aim of, uh, as, as Marx puts it, uh, uh, creating a realm of freedom in which the realm of necessity has been left behind. Um, and if that would be one of the objectives of a socialist revolution, then uh, the question would be what kind of technologies do we have that are going to do that? I think that there's a, right now there is a the real necessity to actually offer a critique of a lot of the, the, the capitalist technologies which which have become I mean we have an enormous array now of uh, household technologies for example which is supposed to be labor saving and time saving but which seem like John Stuart Mill pointed out <laughs> to have exactly the opposite effect they take up time and they dominate time and the result is that people don't have free time because they're so busy managing all of these technologies which are supposedly freeing up and I mean you know there's a there's a there's a real critique to be made and and actually there's a there, there's a, a parallel to Marx's chapter on technology that I think needs to be written which is to ask the question to what degree have we become an appendage of capital in our consumerism, and to what degree 
you know, I mean, in other words, taking, taking this and kind of saying, let's, okay, Marx has done this in the realm of production. Maybe we can do the same thing about consumption right now. To what degree? I mean, to what degree are we autonomous in our consumer choices? Really autonomous, as opposed to you know, fictionally autonomous in the sense that we can go into a shopping mall and we can choose this shirt versus that shirt or this brand of toothpaste versus that or that shampoo versus something else. You know, I mean, tremendous range of, of supposed choice. But, but to what degree are we really autonomous? And have we been turned into appendages of a, of a, of a, of a capitalist consumption regime? And when you look at what Marx is saying here, that, okay, this di technological dynamism is associated with increasing output and increasing capital. Well, that needs an increasing market. How is that going to be structured? Marx makes the assumption in this, in this volume that there is no, all commodities exchange at their value, there's no problem in the market. But here he points out, yeah, there is a problem. The problem is that you need to globalize the market in order to dispose of this immense amount, this mass of commodities. And if there was a mass of commodities that was crying out for uh, absorption and, and marketing back in, you know, <coughs> Marx's time, uh, you know, what is it like now? You know, I, I, this is a, this is a, uh, I mean, again, it would be very interesting to write a chapter like Marx on contemporary consumption and look at, 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 at that and say, you know, you can just imagine writing a little book and kind of saying, oh, yeah, we're appendages of the, of the, of the capitalist consumption machine. And we have no choices about it. We're, 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 we're basically sort of pinned in. And, and, and in fact, what's happening is, uh, what has happened is that capital has defined a certain mode of living, a certain mode of, uh, of, of everyday life, and certain conditions of everyday life. And you've got to conform to that. And too bad if you don't have sufficient money to do that, because then you're, then you're really in a mess. So, so I think uh, the, 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 whole, the whole kind of uh, question of the critique of technology and, the, and a critical approach to technology. And remember in that footnote, Marx kind of said there's not been a proper critical history of technology. And I think, you know, we, we, we have now kind of science and technology departments and so on. And the good ones, you know, recognize some of this coming from Marx and, uh, and have some critique involved, but, but the critique has become more and more kind of you know, silenced. I mean, technological change is a good thing. What do all the big philanthropists do? Try to solve the global problem in the world by developing new technologies. And I think, you know, a critical engagement with what technologies are about and to see technological evolution as actually deeply implicated in, in the whole dynamics of class struggle. 
just simply to take that positionality for a little bit and look at things, and you get a very, very, very critical kind of perspective. I mean, I remember this time when there was all this excitement about the new techniques of uh, production action in, in the sort of 19, late 70s and early 80s called flexible specialization. And people were saying, this is great. A lot of people on the left were saying, this is great. Flexible specialization, who can be against it? And uh, one of the things I did in the condition of postmodernity was to say, flexible specialization equals flexible accumulation. And as soon as you look at it as a standpoint of flexible accumulation, you see that actually this whole, this whole technological evolution was very much class-biased and class-based. And with class effects, which were the disempowerment of workers. And are workers more empowered now than they were in 1980? No way. Flexible specialization did a great job for capital as a form of encouraging flexible accumulation. And that was had a technological organizational base. So so I, I think that you know this these, these questions uh, of of what what can be used and what what and how it can be used and we, and we still need, I think, a perpetual hammering on this kind of question of what is, a, what, what is the critical history of technology that we're looking at? And what is the critical perspective that we want to take? Now, Marx's perspective on this is, I think, interesting. You don't want to get into a situation by saying all technology is bad and that every process is bad. You've really got to start to do a critical kind of thing and ask some of these questions which may not be well posed at the end here, which is, okay, what, what is there going on in all of this which has some sort of opening that we could start to think about appropriating it for a radically different purpose than the purpose to which capital puts it? Is there something going on here? And I would argue, yeah, there's a lot going on which has this possibility. But you can't see it as simply as a technological fix. The technology is not going to give you the future. It's going to take something else. But you're not going to get the future without, the, without a technological transformation either. Which is why I you know, went over those, that initial relationship in the footnote, why the footnote is so important. Because in effect, I mean, one of the principles you could argue is that and until you can insulate technology from the dominant social relation of capital there is no way there will be anything coming out of technology there's anything other than contributing to the further accumulation of capital I mean maybe it's a bit too deterministic but on the other hand as a as a principle, it is not it's not a bad guiding principle to start start there with a, with thinking and then think about modifying the argument. But but it's a, it's a very interesting kind of set of set of questions. Hi, uh, you've talked about your addition of um, 
institutional arrangements or institutional organizations as a crucial element to yeah. historical yeah. materialist analysis. I was wondering how you distinguish those institutional organization organizational arrangement, arrangements from social relations, uh, which are already sort of delineated in the elements. Well, the, you know, the, the point I think about all of those elements I'm talking about is you really, at some point, they all sort of fuse into each other. But the way I would look at it is this, is that the, the field of social relations is one thing. Uh, the field of the law, just to take one set of institutional arrangements, is another. And obviously the law tries to codify certain things about social relations, but social relations are much more fluid than the law. And uh, we're seeing a, a situation right now where a political situation which is very fluid and very dynamic in lots of ways, there's a tremendous sort of desire on the part of many people to stabilize it by saying we should we should appeal to the rule of law. And then the question arises, well, can you change the law? And how, how does the law get changed? Uh, so institutions, I think, uh, and, and uh, to the degree that they, 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 they become kind of solidified uh, and develop, and this is, again, the point that, that Marx wants to make, is that when you're looking at institutions, uh, you're looking at something which evolves not necessarily in response to the requirements of social relations or the requirements of production or the requires, requirements of a metabolic relation to nature. It is something that has its own autonomy, an aut autonomous form, and we have to understand that its own autonomy is such that there will be internal developments within uh, the legal community and within the law, which lead to transformations in practices and, and, and all the rest of it. And those transformations uh, are, uh, therefore, have to be understood, not necessarily as a product of a transformation of technology or something else, but uh, as, a, uh, as, as something that's related to. Now, one of the things that's going to happen in the law, for example, is that artificial intelligence is going to play a very important role in, in legal analysis. That uh, law clerks who go and research you know, background stuff right now are going to, be, going to be out of a job. It will all be automated. And there will be artificial intelligence. And you know, as a lawyer, you want to get uh, you know, case histories or something like that. You just... Uh, talk to Fred, the artificial intelligence, and say, uh, give me all of the cases on this. And Fred will go off and do a research, and in five minutes we'll give it back to you, which is far faster than a law clerk will do it. So, so yeah, I mean, the technology will affect the law, but the institution of the law uh, has its own... Has its own uh, uh, dynamic, and you can say that uh, about uh, the institution of a central bank. Uh, that once central banks are set up, uh, they develop, develop their own traditions and their own dynamics, and they, they you know, um, and then people try to intervene and transform them from outside, as Trump is trying to do. It'll be interesting to see 
if he can do it, because to some degree the central bank has always been answerable not to the President of the United States or to, you know, even congressional, it's been answerable to quote the capitalist class as a, as a class interest. And, uh, you know, turning it into something that's answerable to somebody's personal interest is not in the interest of the capitalist class. So it'll be interesting to see how fast and far the capitalist class will go in pushing and saying, these last two appointments you've made to the central bank are not going to be approved. And make clear to the president there's no way anybody of that sort is going to be approved to the... It'll be interesting to see to what degree that, that happens. But institution arrangements, yeah, of course, they're about the codification of social relations. Uh, and, and, and the law is about, has a lot to say about the codification of, of social relations, but they're, they're changing all of the time, uh, as, as we know. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the, but the dynamic is, is, is of its own sort. So if you, uh, what, I mean, I, I think watching the, 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 the documentary and the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is kind of interesting this way. I mean, it's, of course, it's presented as the, the great individual who did something, you know, you have to put it that way because that's the only way American audience would absorb it. So you, you but, but on the other hand, uh, there's a certain persistence about her within the law, kind of when it's, she's confronted with, I don't know what it was, 278 federal regulations which discriminate against women. And she basically said, we're going to take them down one by one. And, you know, and for 30 years, that's what she's been doing. And that is something that's internal within the law. It wouldn't have happened that way if it were not for the fact that, you know, people are on the streets and there was a feminist movement and all these other things, which both movies entirely ignore, apart from the fact that Gloria Steinem is mentioned a couple of times once or something. But, but nevertheless, the, 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 the story is told is a very interesting story about a lifetime commitment to the transformation of a body of, of, of law. And she obviously did an extremely good job in terms of doing that. And, and I think that, that, that here you see how the autonomy of the legal sector has an important quality to it, so somebody within it can uh, attempt to change it and transform it in certain kind of progressive uh, ways. And, and I think uh, it, it's... it's uh, uh, I think it's a very imp it's an important movie to look at right now because it t says to you revolutions don't occur overnight. It takes a lifetime of you know, taking each regulation one by one and, 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 and dismantling it. And of course, it moves backwards as well as forwards. It doesn't. There's no teleology involved here. Uh, to keep it going forward is very hard. And of course, it, it, it's now uh, kind of uh, in, a, in a stasis position. No great thoughts about this? I don't know if this is a great thought or not, but um, it, in terms of what you were talking about 
or using the <clears throat> using the technology that's um, already existing in order to make a new society that um, that that the new technology is all premised on the most barbaric forms of labor in order to in order to make the plastics in order to make you know to to do the mining to get the right. material and all right. of this to right. that all those people um, who are so marginalized in order, in order to have the new technology um, it, it seems like the people who are talking about creating a new society um, based on technology are are um, casting them aside as if yeah. they don't exist. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a real uh, issue, and I, um, I, you know, there's this tendency to regard technology as something in itself and of itself, and without taking the implications of what it might mean. Uh, at, all, at all kinds of other levels, which it seems to me Marx is suggesting we should uh, be cognizant of in terms of his, well, uh, this new technological dynamism which we see in Lancashire is actually having disastrous effects on uh, the handicraft industry in India. Uh, at the same time as India is being pushed into the sort of uh, becoming a raw material producer for uh, for, for, for the British textile industry, you know, so so, and, and what does that mean in terms of the conditions of life of la and labour of, of those populations? And I think that that, that that's just why why I'm saying a critical history of technology is always required and a critical perspective, always asking these questions: What are these the secondary effects of this technology, which is going to improve productivity? And then say, well, you need a bigger market. How do you get the bigger market? Well, people have to stop um, exercising their own consumer choice, and we have to force them to certain kinds of consumer choices. And same thing about yeah. So I think there's something very significant uh, of that sort. Uh, we have about ten minutes left, and I just want to talk about the next chapter in uh, in here because uh, next time um, I'm, I'm sort of going to jump ahead a little bit since we. Our timing is, uh, you know, of the essence, um, and I want to uh, get into part part six, which is uh, uh, chapter nineteen, uh, sorry, um, no, I, w I want to get, yes, I, I want to get, no, I want to get into part seven, and, and I want to uh, next time to talk about chapter 23 and 24. Okay, so we're going to 23 and 24. Um, the next section of capital is, uh, um, has, begins with this chapter on absolute and relative surplus value, which is a crucial chapter. So let me just briefly say something about it. Um, so far, we've largely considered the condition of the laborer as being an individual condition. Uh, but what Marx does here is to say we have to start to look uh, at the labor process uh, as a collective enterprise. And, and then he kind of says that uh, 
The solitary man, which is on the first page of uh, 643, just as head and hand belong together in the system of nature, so in the labor process, mental and physical labor are united. Later on, they become separate, and this separation develops into a hostile antagonism, essentially with capital dominating the mental functions and the, the, uh, with labor left with the purely physical functions. Um, but we also have to consider that the product is transformed through the joint, as a joint product of a collective laborer. And we therefore have to consider uh, the condition of the productive labor. Uh, in order to work productively, he says at the bottom of the page, it is no longer necessary for the individual himself to put his hand to the object. It is sufficient for him to be an organ of the collective laborer. Now, this is a problem. Where does the collective laborer begin and end? In a factory, you'll find somebody actually doing the making. There'll be somebody who's cleaning the floor. There'll be somebody who'll be pushing this around. So, in a sense, what Marx is saying, all of them are part of uh, the value production uh, because they're part of the collective laborer involved. This poses a problem of what happens when capital starts to subcontract services to somebody else. There's a problem about where the collective labor begins and ends. Um, if the, de the definition of productive labor given above, the original definition, is derived from the nature of material production itself, and it remains correct for the collective laborer considered as a whole. But it no longer holds good for each member taken individually. So an individual can be working in a factory and not doing anything that's productive in the ordinary sense of Marx has been describing it, but they're still part of the collective laborer, so they're contributing their labor to the, the collective activity. And then Marx says the concept of productive labor also becomes narrower. Capitalist production is not merely the production of commodities, it is the production of surplus value. The worker produces not for himself, but for capital. It is no longer sufficient, therefore, for him simply to produce. He must produce surplus value. The only worker who is productive, says Marx, is one who produces surplus value for the capitalist, or in other words, contributes towards the self-valorization of capital. This is a very special definition of productivity. There's all sorts of labor going on in society, which, as far as Marx is concerned, is unproductive. And it's unproductive if it does not actually produce surplus value for capital. The only labor productivity that capital cares about is that labor productivity which can be harnessed to the production of surplus value. And Marx says, if we take an example from outside the sphere of material production, a schoolmaster is a productive worker when, in addition to belaboring the heads of his pupils, he works himself into the ground to enrich the owner of the school. So it's interesting. You can get surplus value out of education. That the latter has laid out his capital in a teaching factory instead of a sausage factory makes no difference to the relation. The concept of a productive worker therefore implies not merely a relation between the activity of work and its useful effect, between the worker and the product of his work, but also a specifically social relation of production a relation with a historical origin which stamps the worker as capital's direct means of valorization. Here comes the big sentence. To be a productive worker is therefore not a piece of luck, but a misfortune. Now, this has created a lot of problems, because most people want to be productive. 
And if you say to somebody you're unproductive, this is kind of considered in our society in particular as a deep, deep criticism. What Marx is saying is actually to be productive in this society is a misfortune. And this is one of the arguments I had with many feminists back in the 80s, 80s when, when, when Miriam kind of said there should be you know, wages for housework. And you kind of say, well, that's nuts. You know, you're trying to make women productive. And they say, yeah, we, women are productive, you know, and they should be acknowledged as productive. And I'm saying, but don't you understand that to be a productive worker under capitalism is a misfortune? Why are you urging everybody to become productive? It's a, it's a, you know, so anyway, this is an interesting kind of concept. But it does carry over in certain kinds of ways. Now, to say... You know, this is a very special, this is capital's definition of productivity. It's not my definition or our socialist general social definition of productivity. But we should be clear why it is that Marx is saying that to be a productive worker under capital is a misfortune. And then he goes on to say, oh, he's going to deal with this. There then comes a, a point where he starts to say, well, there's a, 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 a thing set up on 6.45. It requires, he says, a specifically capitalist mode of production, mode of production which, along with its methods, means, and conditions, arises and develops spontaneously on the basis of the formal subsumption of labor under capital. This formal subsumption is then replaced by a real subsumption. This distinction between formal subsumption and real subsumption is very important in Marx's thinking. Formal subsumption is something where you are dominated by capital in the market. So formal subsumption would be characteristic of the manufacturing period. Real subsumption is where you are under the control of capital in the labor process and in the market. Formal subsumption means that you've become an appendage. That's the appendage condition, the formal subsumption. Formal subsumption is characteristic of the putting out system. Okay? Real subsumption is what happens in the factory. In the putting out system, when the merchants took the, the cloth and asked for, or took the cotton or whatever it was to the, the peasant's hut and told them to weave it, the peasant is in control of their own labor process. At the end of the month, uh, the merchant will come back and pick up the woven cloth, and if it's satisfactory, pay them, you know. But that's, that's formal subsumption. Real subsumption is when the peasant goes into the factory and, is, and the technology and all the rest of it is under the control of the capital. So relative surplus value, by and large, is associated with formal, with, with, with real subsumption. Absolute surplus value is more characteristic of the, of, of the real, of the, of the formal. But then Marx goes on to say, actually, this distinction between absolute and relative surplus value is really kind of illusory. You couldn't have a system that's not absolute, doesn't have, where there's no absolute surplus value, because absolute surplus value presupposes a certain technological capacity. Similarly, there's no point in having relative surplus value if there's not also absolute surplus value. 
So at the end of the day, there's just surplus value. And, it, and that's significant. But it's worthwhile distinguishing between absolute and relative because this distinguishes different strate strategic possibilities for the capitalist in terms of raising productivity. Do you push for the lengthening of the working day? Do you maximize intensity? Or do you innovate in terms of technology and organizational form? And this is taken up uh, in, the next, in the next few pages. So uh, read this chapter, and I'll probably come back to it, uh, on absolute and relative surplus value. The other chapters in here are of, well, I'll talk very briefly about them next time, but I'm going to skip over them because I want to get to uh, the, 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 the situation that starts uh, after we've done wages and peace wages and things like that, and national differences of wages. I want to get to the question of simple reproduction and rep reproduction on an on a expanding scale. Okay, so uh, I guess we're out of time now, so thank you very much. Let's uh, continue with chapters 23 and 24 next time, okay? <laughs>